0: Okay, everyone, um,
1: welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar for Wednesday, September 28th. Uh, everyone remember to turn off your cameras and microphones for teams. And we have uh, live captioning is available. If you click on a top uh, panel up here, the three dots that say more, there's a turn on live captions. Uh, before we start a couple announcements, uh, next week, we're gonna have Harry Elizabeth on September 28th from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab as the speaker. And then uh, the day after that, Thursday, September 29th, is the USGS NASA Science Technology Colloquium, which is part of uh, Celebrate Ames Day, which is all going to be going on in the parade ground right outside of uh, Moffitt, um, so that I think the all of the ceremonies begin at 9.30 next Thursday and the innovation fair is at 11.30 where we'll have some posters and stuff. So if people wanna participate in that, um, register on a link that Sarah Minson sent out yesterday, um, even if you already did and you make sure to check if you're gonna put a poster up. Uh, so today we have Ben Holtzman from Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory and I'm gonna pass it to Leah to introduce him.
2: Hello, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to introduce Ben Holtzman. Uh, ben got his uh, bachelor's in geological sciences from Brown University and his PhD in geophysics at the University of Minnesota. And he then did a postdoc in France and came back to the US and did a postdoc at Le Mans where he is now a research professor. And in addition to that, he has two other affiliations at Columbia University. He's an affiliate with the Data Science Institute, which I think pertains to the work we're going to hear about today. And perhaps most cool of all, he's a scientist in residence at the Computer Music Center at Columbia. Um, If you haven't seen Ben's Seismic Sound Lab productions, I definitely encourage you to check out his website. They're very, very cool. And I think we might even get to see and hear a couple of examples today. Um, So with that, I'd like to hand it off. Ben, take it away.
0: Can you hear me now? Yeah.
3: Okay, thanks, Leah. Thanks for the introduction and um, invitation, and to Tim also, Um, and good morning out there. Uh, I can't see anybody, so um, it's a little bit like my first Zoom talk in the pandemic. (laughs) It's like staring into a black hole, but um, so I guess we'll we'll do questions at the end, I assume, Um, and also I do, there are going to be movies in this talk, so if you, if, um, however works best for you to hear the sound, uh, you might tinker with that uh, because they'll be about halfway through the talk. Um, We had a little bit of difficulty getting the sound to work, so it's it's actually going to be played through my mic, so it won't be ideal, but these are all on our, on our Seismic Sound Lab website. Um, and I can share those links after. Uh, okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, work that we're doing in machine learning. Um, and a lot of these are involve sound in comparison of what we get the output from the machine learning to actually listening to the waveforms. So we, we call this machine listening for a bunch of reasons. Um, but in particular focused on, on geothermal um, heat uh, heat mining and geothermal reservoir dynamics um, and thermodynamics and comparison to what we can observe in laboratory acoustic emissions. And the goal is to be able to improve heat mining safety and efficacy. And um this is there's a kind of a large group that has converged over this. Uh, and related projects um, kind of since the pandemic started because of the accessibility of Zoom. Um, so Tushar Mittal, uh, Nate Grubner, and Teresa Sawi, Eric Kai Kaiwen Wang, Felix Waldhauser. That's the kind of seismology group at Lamont. And, um, and then the Rock Mechanics Lab at MIT is Matepech Pech and Hamid Tengir-Shing and Uli Mak. And Anna Barth at Berkeley and Seth Saltiel in, in Reno. Um, okay, so with that, uh, there are four parts to this talk. The first two are um, kind of the most aspirational, I guess, can deep geothermal heat mining be part of decarbonizing our energy? So how, what are the obstacles to, to and the reasons for trying to get to very deep geothermal heat sources. Um, and then questions on thermal mechanics of heat mining and how machine learning might help us. <clears throat> and so those are, those are kind of aspirational. And then the second part is really where we're at now. Um, and two studies that are both kind of incomplete, but um, have some pretty I think interesting results, but you will definitely notice a gap between where we're trying to get to and where we are now. (laughs) Uh, All right, so the first part. Um, Okay, so people have probably seen these kind of charts that are produced at Livermore uh, that show the energy flow sources, uses, and um, how much is wasted and how much actually gets used. through the U.S. economy, so this is one for 2021, and the coal. I just want to highlight right here. Coal. Coal produces almost 10 quads, which is about 10 to the 18 joules of electricity, right? And a complementary map shows the um, shows electricity shows the the amount of CO2 emitted for that for that amount for each energy source. So it's almost 900 million metric tons uh, for those quads of electricity. So what what would, if we could replace all of that with geothermal energy, what would that look like? So the geothermal is effectively inexhaustible if we can get it, uh, CO2 free. And at most current resources are at about 250 to 350 C. And produce steam at the surface. There's a new kind of emphasis on ultra hot, uh, which is, or it's super hot, or you know all kinds of superlatives that people use. But 400 to 600 is kind of rock temperature, right? Not the fluid coming out, but that's the that's the ideal. And um, the main reason is that you can get supercritical fluids out of there that have a much higher energy density than steam. Um, so the you know the, the problems with geothermal involve a lot of them involve induced seismicity, and they're ever improving traffic light systems to try to kind of mitigate, um, you know, turn off the pumps right before as the as the seismicity rate and magnitude start to climb, um, and those are getting better. But the main problem really is is that it can be very hard to control, uh, and to control fluid flow, produce cracks. So it involves multiple boreholes, um, ones that are that where cold water is going down, and others where the heat source is coming up, and connecting those with fracture networks can be high risk. So if it's high risk, not not safety wise, but just you know, the uncertainty of whether you'll be able to produce those and enhance geothermal systems. then um, how much, you know, h- how much fluid we lost and things like that. So there's a there's a financial risk that's kind of limiting the uptake of geothermal right now. And there's a lot of exciting ideas coming in the kind of private and university. Uh, sectors. Um, and National labs. And so um, OK, so a lot of this there's a l- interesting push to get to high temperatures in Japan. Um, and so this is a recent paper uh, they have a big project called the Japan Beyond Braille project. And this is a recent paper surveying six of the hottest uh, geothermal resources that are active in the world on the geysers in Northern California it, up in Lake Lake and Sonoma County is um, is the largest active one in the world. Um, and one part of it is particularly hot, and that's what I'm going to talk about later. But that produces about a gigawatt of power, which is 10% of the U.S. production. So um, the this is what the, the, the sources that they're targeting in Japan look like, where they have solidified plutons. Um, and they're, the tops of those are these kind of impermeable um, layers with permeable zones underneath. And that's where the, the supercritical fluids are. So they're trying to get down to there. A fossilized system, uh, I, I, I walked around this uh, this summer um, in the Sierras, uh, there's a Sierran granite that it's intruding into Cambrian sediments Marbles, especially, and you get these kinds of dense crack networks. So this is the kind of thing. These aren't all open at the same time, but there's a lot of very hot fluids that are pulsing through these crack networks, and that's the kind of system that we're studying. So it's really a, a high-temperature uh, fracture mechanics problem. All right, and I want to just start with some very quick calorimetry to motivate um, this. This problem so if we just ask how much energy we could get out of a high temperature system or from a geothermal system how much would we need to replace all that coal so the first law uh, we're going to ignore the work this is change in heat and change in work right so calorimetry is just the work and there's a little factor in here this is all based on that on a on a model in that in that um, paper I just showed there's a a little factor here called the efficacy of extraction. Actually, I, I call it that. That's uh, not in the paper. The, so, we need to know the mass of the reservoir and the initial and final temperatures. And those are different for low and high temperature systems. Okay. And then the power generated is just approximated as change in heat over time. So, so let's say we're going to think about a 30 year reservoir. Um, and that'll give us an estimate of the power, and this eta is the efficiency of generation. So in kind of current methods and efficiencies, we would need about 110 kilometer diameter volumes 2 kilometers thick at about 400 C to replace all that coal. And with a a 400 to 600 degree target, at 600 degrees, we'd only need 10 of those. Um, So that's that's ten kilometers imposed on Manhattan. Uh, it's pretty small. Ten of those would replace all of the all of the, the coal production in the U.S. Right? That you know there are lots of numbers to play with here, of course, but but the the point is the the efficacy of extraction number is 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 wide open, and that's something that a lot of effort. Um, is going into improving and the, the better we can do that the, the better we can fix all of these problems really so that's what this talk is about is how do we how can we understand what's actually happening in the in the reservoir um, primarily in this talk by listening or looking at the seismic and acoustic data um, but other data will also be very valuable all right so so how do we go beyond calorimetry then all right so in an actual thermal reservoir the work is is very important um <clears throat> and also it's an open system so at equilibrium thermodynamics is not really is not really that that powerful for understanding this problem it really is a isn't a non-equilibrium, irreversible process kind of kind of system. Um, so tectonic stress is one source of work. The fluid injection and the coupling to temperature changes are the other main source of work. And then there's gravitational energy as well. Um, all right. Yeah. So that coupling between the, the the temperature changes locally and in a non-equilibrium system there are two temperatures at least there's the rock temperature and the fluid temperature even you know at, at some scale where you can define those in an average sense so some examples of what might happen when you inject you get a thermal shock the rock will cool and contract and then you'll get thermal cracking and each of these paths will do something different to the heat transfer at, at multiple scales, so multiple time and length scales. So from the fluid perspective, the fluid heats up, expands, pore pressure rises, but that depends on how open the system is. And that, that can then couple to the rock deformation, the solid matrix deformation, and, and then you get phase changes uh, as the fluid vaporizes, if it does. And then the third path is the chemical disequilibrium, um, which can, can dampen crack tips, clog permeability. If you're precipitating or create permeability, if you're dissolving. So you know, how these coupled processes are changing the heat transfer is really is a very complex and interesting problem. And to go a little bit deeper into that, really this kind of thermodynamics is all about the the fluxes um, and the transport properties. So there's fluid flow through cracks, chemical exchange between the solid and fluid, heat flux by conductivity through the solid, heat flux by fluid advection, heat exchange between the solid and fluid, and then all of the strain rates in the solid, right? And that is is where a lot of the coupling occurs. through the crack density or some this alpha is any kind of what's called an internal state variable that's describing the structure of the material. As it pertains to the mechanical and transport properties. Um, And these can be there can be one or or many of these. These can be tensors, whatever you need to describe uh, the the system. at hand. Um, so these will affect then all of the physical and transport properties, right? The elastic moduli, the thermal expansion coefficient, the the, um, the, the, the brittle creep rates, the viscous creep rates. Um, and so temperature starts to become clear. The effects come into the thermal expansion and um, into the onset of, of, of creep at higher temperatures and then there's some dissipative process that leads to changes in the in the internal state variables and those are coupled to the transport properties. So what we want to be able to do is take. Acoustic and other information. um, Electrical conductivity is another important one. In real time and be able to try eventually to decipher changes in the array in the array of active. Of cracking processes and use that information to infer changes in the transport properties in time. So this is a, a map of crack forming driving forces and processes like thermal cracking, hydrofracture, and and shear faulting. And for example, the combination of hydrofracture and shear faulting is often called hydro shear. So why might these sound different? Um, for example, before and after a rupture, um, if you have a hydraulically assisted rupture where the pore pressure is high, you might you might that little hydraulic fractures coming off of those surfaces might be important in in kind of getting to the unstable state. In a thermal shock situation, uh, thermal cracks might, might be part of the process that lead to failure and those, those may sound very different and a good example of neither of those is Greg McClaskey's experiments from uh, the Nature 2012 where only just, just the, the, the amount of time he let the, the sample heal after a stick slip event leads to very different changes, very different acoustic properties. So spectral, the spectra are changing. The amount of high frequency energy is increasing with increasing load time. So as those as those asperities heal, they are going to release more high high frequency energy as they as they rupture. So that's the kind of thing that that a lot of this. Um, idea is is based on that we should be able to associate these these acoustic signatures uh, with different processes All right so so on the broad scale the the reservoir dynamics the, the kind of general current approach is to make subgrid approximations for the transport and physical properties and and put those into large continuum continuum models of thermohydromechanical or thmc models Uh, so so the national labs a a lot of uh, are developing a lot of these Um, all right so what what we're doing i think is a complementary approach to that to this this kind of um, the large-scale codes where it's a more kind of probabilistic um, approach and using machine learning uh, Constructed from various parts, unsupervised, supervised neural networks, uh, and physics informed kind of uh, methods. Right? So, one of the things we're not doing is trying to speed up physics solvers. Uh, we're not, uh, yeah, whatever. Okay. So, what we here's, here's another representation of that. So, the machine learning in the middle here is composed of an unsupervised part. That's entirely what I'm gonna talk about today, but the goal is to relate the seismicity, uh, acoustic emissions, ambient noise, whatever acoustic. We call these the microscopic information and relate those to macroscopic information. uh, That is the the effective behavior of the rheology and the constitutive models. And and, um, the thermodynamic state is is something that we cannot measure locally but is a way of of constructing the energy balances that would that would uh, constrain the the supervised parts of this of this process right okay so for the rest of the talk i'm just going to focus on the unsupervised learning right um Okay, so similarity. A lot of this is based on the the idea that we can quantify the similarity and differences between waveforms or between noise packets. Um, So a kind of standard representation and analysis of waveforms, there's some filtering step. This is a spectrum. Of the whole signal, and then this is the spectrogram, which is constructed of a lot of short time Fourier transforms. So you break your waveform into a lot of short windows and do an, a Fourier transform on each of those windows, and build this representation of frequency through time. Right, um, but then there are a lot of ways of quantifying the differences or similarities between each of these so you can you can do what's called euclidean distance which is just a pointwise, a pointwise dif- difference between um between two signals of the same shape and and you can do that on the waveform on the um on the spectra or the spectrogram or what i'll show you in the next sections which is our approach called spectrifax um, oh i forgot to put the link in OK, um, but cross correlation is kind of one of the most standard tools for uh, for doing this and um, something a lot of a, a lot of you know, standard seismology toolbox. So we're we're kind of building now a, a workflow that will compare all of these different uh, methods. Um, so you take your data, convert it to some form of input data for the machine learning feature extraction do distance measures and then a clustering approach to find the signals that have that are that are similar to each other after you've gone through the, the feature extraction and distance measures and then empirically correlate those with some with something else that you can measure like the injection rate or surface deformation or uh, um, you know, electrical conductivity or something that that can be measured. Um, all right. So what I'm going to show today mostly is the red path, where we take the waveform, calculate the spectrogram, perform uh, the feature extraction with SpecFX, which I'll show you in a second. Euclidean distance, k-means clustering, and then correlations to physical. Uh, physical aspects or attributes of the earthquakes and we're also going to take this path and listen to the listen to the seismic data okay so SpecUFX is a process uh, that was developed for speech recognition um, um, and music information retrieval you take the spectrogram you perform what's called non-negative matrix factorization pass the output of that into a hidden Markov model and then calculate these fingerprints. So the non-negative matrix factorization takes the large number of spectrograms and decomposes them into this dictionary, which is there's one dictionary for the whole data set that's learned. So this is the learning process is to essentially discover this dictionary that is a minimal representation of of the features that are l- little distributions of frequencies so the bottom the the bottom the the, the axis x axis here in this matrix is the number of the feature <clears throat> and the y axis is the frequency and so these are just the little the little bits of information that you need to reconstruct each spectrogram. So you get one dictionary and then one activation matrix to reconstruct each spectrogram. All right. So the activation matrix is a reduced, is a, a dimensionally reduced representation of the spectrogram. And essentially we're leaving behind the dictionary. So we're, we're, we're extracting more subtle information with each of these steps, more subtle information about the differences among the seismograms. Um, and then so though that large set of activation matrices is then passed into the non-negative, uh, sorry, the hidden Markov model, which then finds constructs another kind of dictionary with what are called hidden states or T. And the states are frequency features that are co-associated with each other so that that occur together so instead of instead of an activation matrix matrix that act that shows all of those features being activated you can just show the states that are being activated Um, so it's a further dimensionality reduction and and a kind of a discovery of of these even more subtle hidden hidden patterns, right? And then to construct the fingerprint, you do counting statistics on those states and the transitions between each state from one to the next, right? And then we take those fingerprints and calculate the Euclidean distances and then do k-means on those to get the most, find the most similar um, fingerprints to each other, okay? So, the geysers, um, 20 minutes. Okay, so the geysers um, is, again, on the border between Lake and Sonoma counties. Uh, This is Clear Lake, um, and these red bits here are the power plants, and there's a large number of of seismic stations and other instrumentation up there. Um, There's about 27 power plants, about 300 injection wells. And it's been operating since the 70s as a power plant. Um, and in the, in the 80s, they started to ramp up the injection, bringing, bringing water from um, sort of runoff and gray water from nearby cities and towns and pumping it up into the hills where the geysers are and basically pouring it down these injection wells into the, into the, into the hot parts of the reservoir. And that is generating a lot of small earthquakes. Um, so we, in our first paper, which is actually still our only published paper on this, um, we we looked at forty six thousand events from twenty twelve to twenty fourteen. Um, they're colored here by depth, and the analysis is just just from this one station here in red. And we found this very very interesting pattern in the clusters. So these are earthquakes that have similar acoustic signatures, what what we found was that the only real pattern to these clusters was temporal. So cluster one got all the winter earthquakes. So here's January, January, January. Um, and then cluster three got the spring earthquakes. Cluster four got the summer earthquakes. And um, And then cluster two got all the earthquakes in basically most of them in 2014, which was a big drought year. So, so there was a clear kind of association of um, the, the acoustic properties with the, with the uh, injection, right? and there were no real spatial patterns at the reservoir, whole reservoir scale. Um, so to we've been kind of uh, iteratively working on this, North events in the northwest corner, where we can we can do a much more kind of, um, look at causal relationships between one one injection well instead of 300 injection wells, in, in this case two injection wells. So the northwest corner is where the hottest. This is a tomography image from Stimac at all. Um, you can see 600 degree isotherm is pushed up significantly relative to uh, other the southern parts of the of the geysers. Uh, in color here you see the injection wells. Uh, some of these are production wells. I don't know which exactly um, and all the micro seismicity is little dots. Right. And the the group in GFZ, uh, Patricia Martinez Garzon and others have been studying the, this this area associated with Praddy 9 and Praddy 29, which are the two injection wells. Um, so this is the, the, the whole geysers, the northwest corner is the big, the big map and then zooming into this little area here is, is what we're going to look at now. So here's the catalog um, and this is the injection rate over from 2008 to 2015. So you can see Praddy 9 was operating the whole time priority 29 turned on in early 2010 and turned off in late 2013 right um this is the process for what we're going to hear in a second the sounds there are two sounds so there's the the seismic data right so what we do is take each earthquake and take the waveform and in this case we speed it up into our audible range so that's uh, i think factor of about 40 or so. Uh, I don't remember exactly if. Oh yeah, 40 right there. Um, so these are two different events. And then we stick it onto a, a soundtrack, stick each event onto a soundtrack. Um, that, so there are two timescales in this process. There's the speeding up of the actual short waveforms and then the construction of the whole signal. Uh, so this is, you know, this is. Um, we're going to hear actually about four, three years, in forty seconds. Um, so if we sped up the direct waveforms, direct uh, for that whole time, if we just had continuous signal, it would be much way above our audible range. So we have to kind of do this two-step process. And then the second sound you're going to hear are. A series of beeps that are changing in pitch, that occur regularly in time, and those are representing the injection rate. So you can kind of, our ears are very good at at deciphering causal in causal events or interpreting whether something is one sound is causal for uh, another sound, um, we use that all the time for kind of safety. Uh, all right. Okay, to assess danger and things. Okay, so here is the first movie. It's actually starting. This is going to be two thousand nine to twenty thirteen. It starts right in a kind of active time, um, and then you'll you'll see and hear when when Praddy twenty nine turns on. Right. in stereo that the the two different injection wells are in right and left ear and the uh, the seismicity sounds are spatialized so it sounds much better with headphones but um, I think it's enough to get the idea so that screeching sound that turns on when pratty 29 turns on is kind of the the most obvious thing that happens um, that It's possible that it's machinery, I would expect. uh, The station is pretty far from the injection well, so I'm not sure that is, and I think it would be more monotonic if it were a machine. Um, And they fixed it after a year. Um, Another possibility is fluid flow, phase changes, uh, when the vapor fraction is large, Acoustic properties will change dramatically, um, and there will be new sources of high-frequency energy, like there are in volcanoes. Um, and so, I think these are kind of more likely. Another possibility is clouds of thermal cracking and other, you know, very very small seismicity that is not that's not picked up as discrete events at all. So that's the kind of um, that's what that's you know questions to all over here's what the, the machine learning spec effects and clustering put out so that all that screeching is captured right here in number cluster number two um, and that just dominates dominates the the, the signals um, so and then the clustering um, in the time before Pratty 29 turns on we actually don't really see that that seasonal signal that we see across the whole reservoir in our first study. But then in <clears throat> after 2011, after the screeching stops, you start to see it emerge and whole other sets of, of clusters get activated. They, to our ears, they probably sound pretty similar to what was going on before, but this is picking up more subtle things. And then you start to see that seasonal signal reemerge. Up here in clusters four, five, and six, in particular. Okay, um, again, we don't really see any spatial clustering. It's all temporal. This is that's a map view cross section. These are the the ends of the of the injection boreholes, and the distance. This is a plot of distance of each event from Prati nine. This guy, the red one. Um, so we don't really see clusters that are, that have a a kind of, that are characterized by a distance from Praty-9 either. Um, So it really is consistent with what we saw in the, in the whole reservoir too, is that it's probably that all of these different kinds of earthquakes are happening at the same time. Um, I'm sorry, they're happening all over the place, um, different ratios and different times. right, another way of representing this is with a graph uh, that shows the cluster transitions. So these are probabilities of moving from one cluster to another in time. So if you think of this as jumping, these are the cluster labels, you're jumping from one to another. At each time, the the width of the arrow shows you the probability that you're going to go to another cluster, to each of the other clusters. <clears throat> um, it it does, This one doesn't show very much, but when you take these sub windows, so break this this plot into into sub regions by time. And then look at these plots. You can see that the how the probabilities of moving from one cluster to another change. So these are kind of second level fingerprints in a way. Um, That that would be the kinds of things that we would use to indicate um, transition in in cracking and transport mechanisms. When we can start to associate those. Um, And just to go back to waveforms, these are the most representative waveforms from each of those clusters. Um, So you can see, you know, to traditional standard methods of seismology, these These would look different, similar, and depending on what you're doing. But um, some of these are pretty subtle differences that are being picked up by spec effects. Okay. But to go further, we really need laboratory experiments. And, oops, this is not the first section. (laughs) Okay. So what are we doing in the lab? Again, we're trying to um, understand this map by sound, we're starting here. So we're starting with, which is the easiest thing to do in the lab, which is just to take a rock and squeeze it in the in room temperature and listen to it cracking. And we've been doing this with some experiments on basalt, um, a few different kinds of basalt, but the ones that are most far along, I'll show you are, are ones that were done for a study on carb fix from Iceland. Um, We're also working on some calcite marble experiments and granites. Um, And the advantage of doing experiments is that we can label the data. We can we get the macroscopic mechanical data and we can associate the changes in the acoustic properties uh, with with thermodynamic conditions, stress, strain, temperature, and also with measurable changes in the medium. Um, so, this, this, is the, this is the paper that's on these experiments that was published last year by Tengue, Xing, and um, Hamid Kafari, and Uli Mach and Matepech. And this is a, a New England research machine that has very good acoustic emission setup, uh, sensors, and, um, and processing. And these are very, very long experiments. All right? So um, these are hundreds of hours, which is un- pretty unusual. Um, and we have recordings on eight channels recorded at 50 megahertz. But we also have pulsing, acoustic pulsing, so ultrasonic pulses uh, that are emitted so here here's what acoustic emissions are so for poor four pzts that the transducers that record the acoustic signals right we'll pick up that there's a source and a path effect but the ultrasonic trans uh, ultrasonic pulsers which is also a transducer but is going to send a of a, a, a A uniform. It's not a. It's not a simple signal because there's kind of resonance inside the pulsar, but, but it's the same pulse every time, and so changes in the recordings are entirely due to the path, and this is really closest, an an analog to using ambient noise in the field to to try to um, get a sense of what the what the uh, The acoustic properties of the medium are. Uh, This is what the starting material looks like, the glassy matrix, um, and then some big pores and some pores that are filled with minerals. And um, this is a a post-mortem where you can see all the cracks that have formed. Here's another movie. This is listening to one set of acoustic emissions in the dry data. That was 30 minutes in 30 seconds. And these are recorded at megahertz, so they're shifted down by about 50 times into our range of hearing. So that was a, a sample with no fluid. And this is a sample with water in it. And this was a much longer time. So this was three times as long, 90 minutes played back in 30 seconds. The sounds are very different, largely because there's a much higher noise level in these, in these, in the wet ones. And that is probably the sum of a lot of very small events uh, that are not that, you know, sometimes they sum to something that is above a threshold for recording. So um, there's a there's just probably a lot of much smaller events occurring all the time um, to build up that. That sound, that scratchy sound. Um, if we now look at the the spec effects results, this is clustering four four clusters. Um, so these this is the stress in blue and the strain in green. And looking at the whole experiment, um, we don't really see a clear transition in clusters with time. Um, They're kind of looks like they're mostly fairly equally represented. um, Their ratios at each stress pulse. So every time there's a pulse in, uh, sorry, not a pulse, but a step in, in the load applied load, there's a bunch of acoustic emissions. And in this, in the dry sample, they all occur at the same time. Then, if you zoom in and look at just one of those, you can see kind of pretty interesting transitions between the clusters in in time. Um, so we are looking at more detail at that. If now, this is the wet basalt. You can see there is a drift from cluster one at low stresses and strains to clusters three and four at high stresses and strains. And then cluster two is right before the sample fails. So the sample has through going cracks here, and it sounds very different. Um, And then if you look at, zoom in on one of those, you can see that there are also kind of interesting uh, transitions between the clusters in one of these steps. So so the PZTs, uh, sorry, the acoustic emissions, um, the variations in the fingerprints may relate to things like crack lengths, crack modes, pore collapse, crack complexity, like the number of micro cracks that are joining up or something like that. Crack growth, slip rate. You might think of these as asperity patterns if you want. Um, Interactions with grain boundaries is another phenomenon that's occurring in these samples. And then I'm going to show next the ultrasonic pulsing. And so this is just, you know, this is in some sense it's it's different information, right? It, it, there's no, what we're seeing, especially after it passes through some kind of feature extraction, um, are where the differences among the events are going to be just related to differences in the path. So when we look at just one, the data from one sensor, we're looking at the differences along the path uh, propagation. All right, so this is this is a lot of data right here. Uh, this is thousands of of waveforms. So the, in looking going up, each column starting at, at the bottom of this top m- matrix are the waveforms represented by color. So color is amplitude going up in time or along the time of the waveform going up. So these are all of the waveforms and you can see the the changes in the arrival times. Or the, the phases of the big pulses. Um, with time. Um, where the X axis in both of these is the is, is when the pulse occurred. So this is the time over the duration of the experiment. So we call these this is the long time axis, and this is the short time axis. And then this matrix is called a distance. This is a distance matrix um, comparing the difference, the, L, the Euclidean distance just between the waveforms. So this is the simplest kind of distance measure, not running this through spec effects, um, which is starting with the simplest first uh, and looking at those um, those pulses as as they occur through time. So it's each pulse, uh, the difference compared to it, the every other pulse um, on the y-axis, and then overlaying here are the is the mechanical data. So you can see this this kind of segmentation of the of the difference matrix correlates very closely to stress. So these are stress stress steps here, and you get the purple clusters, the blue cluster, and the orange cluster. Right. that's for the dry for the wet the 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 relationship between the the distances between each pulse waveform and the stress is even is clearer so so each color represents the the cluster um, yeah okay so what does that what does that mean um I think it starts to become clear, and this is another complicated plot this on the left is is this lower right plot here, the wet basalt distance matrix. on the right is a distance matrix for the acoustic emissions from the same experiment right but they're not organized by time they're organized by after passing through a hierarchical clustering so these they're organized by the clusters kind of reduced to a one dimensional array and then these these bars these of different colors on the edges are in this on the on the top it's time and on the on the left is stress so if if these two patterns were very similar uh, sorry this is complicated to compare but um, we would see we would see chunks of color representing stress and that is not what we see we see lots of mixture of these along this, this stress axis so these are stress labels attached to each waveform and time and since we know that time and stress are kind of increasing together um, this is saying that the similarity between waveforms is not, is not well correlated with stress. So when we compare that with the ultrasonic pulsing that is correlated with stress, we can tell that we're getting more information about the source, the acoustic emission source, than we're getting about the path. The path is correlating strongly with stress, and the sources are not nearly as correlated with stress. So that is exactly, that's the kind of first building blocks that we need to have something that's being fed into a a, a neural network that is trying to relate the macroscopic processes to to the microscopic information. Right, so uh, preliminary results. The fluids lead to a greater diversity of acoustic patterns than we see in the dry samples, uh, suggesting that there may be a clear separation of clusters, that's suggested by the clearer separation of clusters with stress and strain. Um, and the fluids also seem to affect the acoustic emissions interactions or the cracking, the, how the cracks are interacting. Um, in the very different timescales, and also the cluster transitions, and there is a sensitivity of this inference to things like like where we put the threshold of recording acoustic emissions. So we're doing a lot of uh, as much kind of continuous data recording as we can. So we're not we're not limited by these kinds of um, you know filtering that of the data that occurs during the experiment. Um the ultrasonic pulse is the initial results comparing Euclidean distance between the waveforms and the AE, the AEs for uh and the pulses show that the pulses cluster much more with stress and strain than the AEs do. All right. So that that suggests a separability of source and path effects. So we'll be in the next set of experiments, we'll be revisiting stress steps to try to separate stress and strain effects as well. Um, And then a kind of leap to next projects or to reproduce experiments from Wang and Bonner and all at all from the late 80s at Livermore, where they were producing thermal stresses and cracking in granite. And recording acoustic emissions um, so we're going to try to reproduce those experiments record the acoustic emissions and then go from there all right so just to recap um, the goal when we're listening to our machine listening to a reservoir we want to be able to approximate where we are on this on this mechanism map so that we can learn what these what the an effective constitutive model for the reservoir at some length scale is and how it's changing in time and ultimately to be able to predict how the reservoir will respond to changes in the forcing and if we can if we can do this we'll be able to help build better um, traffic light systems mitigate seismicity but also Control the balance of thermal and hydraulic cracking and reservoir stimulation to optimize the efficacy of extraction. Okay, thank you.
0: Any questions? Ben,
1: yeah, nice nice talk. Um, (laughs) Anyone has a question, they can raise hands or type it into the chat. Should I stop sharing the
0: screen?
3: Didn't, didn't no, but, yeah, yeah, I'll wait. Oh,
1: sorry, that was
0: so long. No problem, we got a few minutes, so sorry, so. so <laughs> no questions. There's a question in the chat um, from Morgan Page, oh, from Elizabeth.
1: Do the four clusters identified for the wet and dry samples have the same features or are they determined separately?
3: Oh, Um, they're, uh, so they have, they they are different clusters because their features are different enough from each other. Is that? Not, that, yeah, that, that, yeah.
0: Sorry. Yeah. This is Elizabeth. Uh, yeah. I was wondering, basically, whether when you did the clustering analysis, if you took the two data sets together, um, yeah. or so. whether you analyze them separately. So therefore, we can't really think yeah. that, say, cluster one of the dry sample is analogous to cluster one of the wet sample. Right.
3: Okay. Definitely. Yes. Thank you. Um, yes. We. We do both of those. When we do a hierarchical clustering, we basically get a branch that's very high up in the, in the hierarchy. That's the separation of the two experiments. And that, when we do that, we're learning a single dictionary um, for both. If, uh, but, but what I showed was learning them separately and we get more, more detailed information because because they're so different from each other the 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 waveforms from the two experiments are so different the dictionaries are pretty different so so one approach is to kind of do a hierarchical clustering and then see where it splits and then relearn learn dictionaries rerun of sub experiments um to learn dictionaries with more detail in them. But what I showed was two different dictionaries. So the clusters are not are not uh, cluster one and cluster one from the other experiment are not comparable. Thanks.
0: Yep. There any other questions for Ben? I've got one in the
2: chat.
1: There was one in the chat that we just answered. Is there another question?
2: Could you just ask it? Because I don't see it in the chat anywhere.
3: I I can't see the chat either.
1: Yeah, Um, I, I just asked a question that the only one I see in the chat is from Elizabeth that she just asked.
2: I can can say it. I'd like to know, uh, first of all, that it's amazing to me to see what uh, the sophisticated analyses of fracturing in geothermal areas. I was the second author on the first paper published on micro earthquakes at the geysers in 1972,
3: 50 Uh years
2: ago. And it's just amazing to see how seismology has evolved from our primitive data set that allowed only mere recognition of the earthquakes. I have two uh, two specific questions. Uh, okay. One is how does your term efficacy of extraction differ from the term recovery factor used in the USGS geothermal resource assessments?
3: Oh, that is. Oh probably only my ignorance. I um I need to read those. Um, um and I, so I don't know. I don't know how it's different. I, I I just used it in in the context of the very, very crude um um calorimetry where it's just it's just a fraction of an of of the total energy that is extracted.
2: That's basically what we call the recovery factor. The okay. second question I had, uh, what is the physical explanation for the seasonal variation in the northwest geysers? In other words, why should the rocks at depth be reacting to the change in seasons at the surface?
3: Yeah, I think I didn't say it clearly, The the um, or maybe I didn't, I forgot to say it at all. What the seasonality comes from the when it's when there's more rain. This is, Think of this as a big catch basin. These oscillations in the injection rate are just entirely because of the rainy season. Um, so there's there's just more rain in the winter, and so but there's a there's a delay. So we have done some causality studies to to. To, like take direct rainfall data on the geysers itself um, versus the injection rate. So there's a lag between the rainfall and the the injection rate. Like there's a little bit of time before that collected like sewer storm runoff drains and the uh, that that to make it up into the geysers. So uh, we didn't see any difference, like nothing that we could decipher, um, in terms of a, a, a direct correlation or a correlation with a lag between um, kind of local rainfall that might change the the weight of the of the soil or the weight of the shallow crust on the deeper crust or something like that. Um, so it's really i think it's really just the injection volume, and then whatever as that as that injection rate goes up um the there is a there are studies that show that the 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 fluid the fraction of fluid to vapor in the in the reservoir looks different based on the attenuation either from l b l um So, when the injection rate is higher, there's more fluid in the reservoir relative to steam. The steam fraction is smaller. And then it, there's a lag, and that starts to heat up and form steam. So, so there are, there's, a, there's a stress change associated with the change in the injection rate.
0: Is that? Thank you. That
3: helps. Good.
1: Thank you. Okay, well, we're we're over the hour now, so um, let's thank Ben again. And uh, people can stick around and chat informally if they want. But
0: otherwise, um, we'll see you guys next week.
3: All right. Thanks very much, everybody.
0: Yeah, thank you.